Well, hello everyone. Uh, good to see you. Um, most of you will know who I am. I think if you've not met me before, my name's Ross. Um, I'm a member of the ministry team here. And a warm welcome to everyone, both uh, old and new, regular and uh, irregular Tom. Um, yeah. If you're coming back from a holiday or if you're just joining us for the first time uh, this evening, you're joining us on the second week of our series in Habakkuk, How Long, um, O Lord. And last week we saw some utterly amazing things. We saw the way that God judges sin in our time, that he pours his judgment out on Christ on the cross, the one whom we have been singing about um, tonight. And before we get stuck into this passage, before we uh, look at what's coming this week, let's pray, let's ask uh, God for his help. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we praise you for the Holy Scriptures, which you have caused uh, to be written for our learning, to make us more like Christ, to show us yourself. Father, please would your Holy Spirit be with us now. Please would he give me the words to say. and Please would he prepare our hearts to receive what it is that you would have me say. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. What we're going to see today, friends, is that God's people wait for the fulfillment of God's promises, even when it seems like that's not going to happen. And as we see that, we'll see three principles for how God's people wait, that we we wrestle with God, that we walk with God, and that we wait um, for God. Now, let me just give you a flavour of of what's been happening so far in the history um, of God's people. Um, God has made some promises um, to his people. He promised them um, a place to live, a land. Uh, He promised to make them into a great people, a numerous um, people. And he promised to bless them with his presence through all these things he has been doing. So he brought them into the promised land and the people sinned. And rejected God. And the land ended up being divided into the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom. Um, Habakkuk lives in the southern kingdom, Judah. They had a succession of sinful kings. All of them did wrong in the eyes of the Lord. Some did right, but they were in the minority. And these sinful kings, they led God's people to worship idols. They led them to do bad things. It was a bit like uh, the Wild West. People would just do what they thought was right. You know, there was blood and uh, murder and violence. And the lawman, he was just snoozing in his office. You know, the the law was paralyzed to help um, these people. It's a bit like the Wild West. And in the midst of all of this, Habakkuk is crying out, How long, O Lord? How long will you let this go on? Why have you not punished your people? And so God replies to him in the second, uh, in verse 5 to 11, and he says, okay, I'm going to punish my people by sending Babylon, that people. And Habakkuk here, when we pick him up in verse 12, says, oh, no, wait, I didn't want that. He, he says, God, I wanted you to, to punish, but not them, surely not them. Why would you send them? See, he, he can't understand how God can see the evil of Babylon and tolerate it. It makes him wonder, is God still the ruler of the world? 
Because Habakkuk knows this about God. He believes that God is the ruler. Look at verse 12 with me. He says, O Lord, that's Yahweh, the covenant name for God. He knows the promises that God has made to his people. He knows God's steadfast love, his compassion, his mercy. He knows what God has been doing amongst his people already. Are you not from everlasting, my God, my Holy One, the Holy One who's set apart from sin, a name used for God in the Old Testament to talk about his, his holiness and his righteousness, that sin can't be in his presence without being burned up and destroyed? We will not die. Habakkuk places his confidence in the future of God's people, in God's character himself. O Lord, Yahweh, you have appointed them to execute judgment. O Rock, a name which pops up for God again and again in the Bible. Eventually it's attributed to Jesus. But O Rock, the one in whom we find refuge, in whom there is strength. Like in Psalm 18, where we read, The Lord is my rock, my refuge, my shield. You've ordained them to punish. See, Habakkuk knows what God is like. He knows God is the ruler. He's a good theology um, of God. But then look at verse 13, what he says there. He says, all this about God, but then your eyes are too pure to look on evil, the evil of Babylon. You cannot tolerate wrong. So why then do you tolerate the treacherous? Why are you silent while the wicked, that's Babylon, swallow up those more righteous than themselves. Now I know that, that Habakkuk has been complaining about the unrighteousness of his own people in Judah. But we heard last week that at least some in there were righteous. So they're, they're a little bit more righteous than the Babylonians. So compared to them, Babylon, they're the wicked. Habakkuk wonders, how can God, God be this good God? How can he be... This ruler God, and yet still permit this kind of evil. How can he even appoint it in verse 12? How can he ordain this kind of work? How can he use them to accomplish his purposes? Now, the philosophers amongst us will call this the problem of evil. And throughout the centuries, it's been uh, rehashed by various different atheists and philosophers, and it's come out in novels and books um, Probably Richard Dawkins is the most recent one to, to come out with this. But I think it's been best summarized for me by that great philosopher of our time, Lex Luthor from Batman vs. Superman, The Dawn of Justice. It's a great film. Well, it's not really that great. It's okay. <laughs> it got bad reviews, but I thought it was all right. Andy liked it. Um, and in the film, there's this is a big theme, right? God versus man. Is God good? Can Superman be powerful and good at the same time? Right? And this has been building towards the climax of the film. And you get there and Lex has kidnapped Superman's mum. And uh, he's standing on top of this great big tall tower. And it's gushing with rain and there's thunder and there's lightning. It's very atmospheric. And he looks up and Superman comes imperiously drifting towards him. He finally gets his confrontation. Right? And he says this. You see, what we call God depends on our tribe, Clark Joe. I'll not do his accent to spare the American friends amongst us. Because God is tribal. God takes sides. 
No man in the sky intervened when I was a boy to deliver me from daddy's fists and abominations. No, I figured out way back that if God is all-powerful, well, then he can't be all-good. And if he's all-good, well, then he can't be all-powerful. And neither can you be. The problem of evil is clearly an issue for us, brothers and sisters and friends. If even Superman is talking about it, if even it's coming out in our films and in our books and in our songs, this is clearly something which is on our mind. The author and journalist Lee Strobel, um, who wrote the quite famous book now, um, The Case for Christ, he commissioned a survey asking what people would ask God if they had the opportunity to ask one question of God. The most common response was, why do you allow pain and suffering in the world? See, we see these things happening too, and we wonder why. How can God allow that? Is God still the ruler? Is God still good? Is what we believe about God actually true? Or does this problem of evil mean that it can't be? Just like Lex Luthor says. Like when we see those 200 girls kidnapped in in Nigeria by Boko Haram. I think it was a couple of years ago now. And remember at the time, there was this big furore in uh, social media and on the news. And all these celebrities were tweeting pictures of themselves saying, bring back our girls. It was the thing to do at the time. And since then, I think only a handful of them have been released or have escaped. A lot of them are still in, most of them are still in captivity. But the news has forgotten about them. All those celebrities that tweeted pictures of them have forgotten about them. Has God forgotten about them too? Why does he allow that? Or when we see Islamist extremists bombing a church in Lahore in Pakistan on on Easter Sunday, killing 68, wounding over 300 people, how can God allow this? How can he tolerate this? Or we see a friend or family member who's just been to the doctor and they've just been told the cancer's back. That's not good news. How can God look on that and be silent? We see poverty and starvation and and that by the time I've finished speaking this evening, 450 more children will be dead because they don't have enough food. How can God see that? Why does he tolerate wrong like this? Why doesn't he stop this? Is it because he can't? He's He's not the ruler? Is it because he won't? He's not good. See, on paper, Habakkuk knows that God is the ruler. In verse 12, he knows that he's the Lord, the Holy One, the the rock. He knows he's the one who ordains and appoints things um, to happen. And we know this as well. But to, to Habakkuk, it looks like Babylon is the ruler. That's why he brings his um, complaint to God. It looks to Habakkuk like God isn't keeping his promise, his covenant promises that he has made to his people because the people are going to be destroyed. They'll be taken away from the land, the the place that God had promised them. They'll be taken away from the place of God's presence, the temple as well. It looks like God's promises aren't being fulfilled amongst them. Well, friends, this is the first big principle that God gives to his people for those waiting for the fulfillment of his promises. 
Let's wrestle with God in prayer. Wrestle with God in prayer. Because that's what Habakkuk does. That's that's what he's modeling here for us. He sees what's going on in the world around him. He sees the advance of the Babylonian Empire. They're growing in strength. They're conquering kingdoms around them. He's been told by God that he's appointed this. He's allowing them to do this. He's seen their brutality. And he's wondering why. And he cries out to God with that. He doesn't keep it to himself. He's modeling this principle, wrestling with God for us. Now, sometimes I talk on the phone uh, to my brother, Matt. He's older than me. And uh, I actually speak to him more now than when I did when I lived in Northern Ireland. Um, but Matt is an atheist, right? And when we're on the phone, we talk about lots of things. We talk about the state of politics in Northern Ireland and how it's so disillusioning. And uh, we talk about current affairs and we talk about music and things that he's interested in. And we also talk sometimes about God because he knows I'm a Christian and I know that he's an atheist. And sometimes we, we talk about um, various different issues to do with God and he challenges me with things and says, Ross, how can you think this? But when I come back and, and give him an answer or when I say to him, look, Matt, how can you think that? And if he doesn't have an answer for it, he'll just say this thing. He sounds really philosophical and kind of humble. And he says, Ross, you know, I'd rather have questions that can't be answered than answers that can't be questioned, you know. And then he, that's it. That's the conversation done, you know. There's no more questions to be asked of Matt because he'd rather have those questions than, than look for the answers. Because in Matt's mind... That's what Christians must do. We must just, we we have these answers and we mustn't question them. We see these things happening, well, we've just got to have faith. We've got to blindly accept everything. That's what Matt thinks that being a Christian is about. But that's not what God requires of us. God doesn't just squish anyone who, who asks a question of him, like Matt thinks. God's not like that. He's the Lord, He's Yahweh. He shows covenant love, steadfast love um, to his people. He's our rock. He's our refuge, our shield, our salvation. He's our holy one. He delights to hear our prayers. And brothers and sisters, wrestling with him in prayer, coming to him when we don't understand why something's happening, well, that's a biblical practice. That's something which has comforted me greatly um, this week because I can't always make sense of uh, what's happening in the world around me or in my own personal um, circumstances. I'm sure it's a great comfort to, to some, if not all of us here. Because I'm sure that sometimes it feels like God isn't the ruler. Or sometimes it feels like God's not going to fulfill his promise that Christ will return. And I wonder, do we feel like that? Because do we feel like we can't express those feelings, and particularly in church. I mean, we all come here and we're all dressed very nicely and we're all very nice to each other. And I mean, even I've put on a shirt for this evening, you know, we're all very respectable looking. But do we feel like we can't express those feelings because it would mean that we're not being a good Christian? Our, our, our facade, our front, it wouldn't be up anymore. Well, that's wrong. That's not how we should feel. That's not what God commands um, to us. The principle here is honesty with God. Not, Not pretending that everything's okay. Not having this religious front. Not with God, not with each other. 
Because what you find, um, brothers and sisters, friends, is if you're honest with God in this way, that your relationship with him becomes much deeper. Your relationship with him becomes much sweeter. Because it's a relationship of honesty and of love. You're not praying to him out of some sense of, of duty. You're praying to him because, well, you're feeling these things and you're crying out to your heavenly father. It's a bit like, um, like me and Emma. I've got a wife, uh, just one, called Emma. Um, most of, some of you know her. She's, she's great. And um, what, if, what if I never spoke to Emma when I had a problem? If, I had, if she did something which I didn't understand, right? I don't have any examples because she's brilliant, so she doesn't do anything um, like that, just in case she's listening in online. But what if, what if I didn't speak to her about that problem, just went, oh, it's okay, no, I understand exactly what you've done, that's fine, you know, that's, that's absolutely fine. And what if she did the same for me? said, no, Ross, that's fine. I mean, she, does, she has to do this much more often to say, Ross, what have you done? But she says, what if she didn't? What if she said, actually, it's fine? What would happen would be we would just be two people pretending that everything's okay and we'd actually be growing further and further apart. And eventually we'd have to stop kidding ourselves and say, actually, we're, we're not really in a relationship anymore, are we? <clears throat> See, that's what it's like with God. We can't pretend with God. Otherwise, we'll just grow further and further apart with him until we eventually say, look, I don't really believe in him. But friends, if you, if you wrestle with God, if you come to him honestly in prayer, well, it's, it's less trying to know about God it's less trying just to please him out of some sense of religious duty. It's more about knowing God, loving God. And Habakkuk models that, that wrestling for us here because he comes to God. He doesn't understand. He says, God, why is this happening? I know this is about you. I know you're holy. I know you're powerful. But how can you allow this? The question that has prompted Habakkuk's wrestling with God is, is Babylon the real ruler? Is Babylon really um, the ruler? Because it looks to Habakkuk like God has made them the rulers of the world. Look at verse 14. You've made men like fish in the sea, like creeping things that creep along the ground that have no ruler. Things that creep along the ground, it's a better translation of uh, sea creatures here. But those words, you, you might... They might sound familiar to you. Fish in the sea, things that creep along the ground. They'll ring some bells from Genesis for us. They're the words that God uses after he creates the world and after the flood. When he makes mankind the rulers of the world under his authority and puts everything else in subjection to them. But to Habakkuk, it looks like God has made Babylon that, the rulers of the world. And compared to them, well, everyone else is inhuman. They're like the fish. They're like the creeping things, the, the little worms and the, the ants and the slugs. Things that have no ruler. Things that are, are at the mercy of their rulers. And when God made creation, when he ordered creation like this, it was to be a good rule. Mankind was to be a blessing um, to creation, was to steward it and prosper it. But is that what Babylon does? Well, no, they're wicked rulers. Look at um, verse 15. The wicked foe is Babylon personified here. The wicked foe pulls all of them up with his hooks. He catches them in his net. 
He gathers them up um, in his dragnet. There, Babylon is a, a cruel and wicked foe because the, the reference to hooks and to nets here, that's what Babylon would do to the nations that they had conquered. That's how they would lead their captives away. It was after they were victorious in battle, they would put hooks in the cheek or a hook up the nose and would lead their captives away behind their chariots, rejoicing and partying at how great they were. Or they would, they would catch people in nets, they would throw them in their drag nets and drag them along behind their chariots over the rocky ground with no regard to their, their safety. Babylon were wicked rulers. But is God commending what they're doing? He's appointed them after all. He's ordained them after all. Is he commending what they're doing? Well, you notice as well, Babylon worships itself. The wicked foe worships itself. Look at verse 16. Therefore he sacrifices to his net. He burns incense to his drag net. Again, that that language of, of sacrifice and of burning incense, that should be ringing some Old Testament bells for us. Because that's exactly how God has ordered his relationship to his people. They were to make sacrifices to remove the barrier of sin between them and God so that they could rightly relate to God. They were to burn incense to him as, as their prayers rose before him like a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's the language of fellowship with God. And instead, Babylon's doing it to itself. It's worshipping itself. It's praising itself. It's praying to itself. They're a wicked and idolatrous nation. But is God commending that? How can he be silent while they do that? Well, finally, Babylon, they, he, they rejoice over misery. Do you see that after they lead people away with the hooks up the nose or in the nets? In verse 15, he rejoices and is glad. Or in verse 16, so he worships himself, Babylon worships himself. He lives in luxury, enjoys the choicest food. He feasts and parties at the expense of others. See, the Babylonians, they, they rejoice at the misery of others. They're glad because they live in luxury. And meanwhile, they've left this trail of devastation behind them. And Habakkuk's wondering, well, is God rewarding their behavior? Has he blessed them with this prosperity and this, this rejoicing? See, it's tempting for Habakkuk and for God's people to doubt that God is going to fulfill his promises to them. To make the land prosperous. That, they, that he would bless them. That there would be a blessing to all the nations. And it would be tempting for them to look for another way to fulfill these promises. To restore prosperity to the land. That might be that they, they make a treaty with, with Babylon. Imagine what they're thinking. Look at, look at how they're living. Is that not a better way? Do they not have the choicest food? Do they not live in luxury? And here we are being destroyed and taken away as captives. Well, perhaps, perhaps their gods are better than ours. Perhaps our God isn't really the ruler that we were told he is. Perhaps we should join them. And that's just what God's people do at certain points in history. You read in, in 2 Kings 24 of how God's people make treaties with Babylon. The, the king becomes a vassal for, for the king of Babylon. 
They try to amalgamate themselves into the Babylonian Empire so that they'll have some of this prosperity at least. They'll be part of this great ruling nation instead of the, the ones in servitude, the inhuman ones at the mercy of these rulers. Well, this is the next principle God gives um, for believers wanting or waiting for God's fulfillment. It is walk with God, not his enemies. Walk with God, not his enemies. Because friends, the temptation is the same for us Christians, isn't it? We're tempted to adopt the practices of those who look like the rulers in the world. That might be that those who are successful in business by unethical practices, we maybe think, oh, I could make a bit of money like that. I could cut some corners. I could give them some, some cheaper stuff that's, that's not really fit for purpose, but you know, it'll boost my profit margins. I could pay my workers uh, an unfair wage just so I can make a bit more. Or at work, we might want to be in the inner circle. We might want to try and advance our career by getting involved in office politics or by gossiping and rejoicing with our co-workers at the expense of others behind their back. Or maybe in, in church, we see these, these big, successful-looking churches and uh, they've, who've changed the gospel message, even if only slightly, they've just changed it a little bit just to make it slightly more palatable. And people are flocking to them. They've got new people every week and it seems like they're bursting at the seams and they've got to get new buildings and new campuses and all this uh, new stuff and they're growing. It looks like God is rewarding them and blessing them. And it's tempting for us to think, hmm, maybe if we, if we stopped saying these things, then more people would come and be part of the fellowship here. Hmm, maybe if we did that, maybe that's the way God wants us to go. But actually what you find is that those churches are are not worshipping the God of the Bible. They're worshipping themselves. They're worshipping their enigmatic leaders. They're not worshipping the God that they claim to believe in. Perhaps at home. Perhaps we like to live in in luxury and enjoy the choicest of foods. Even if that means our giving has to decrease or to cease altogether. Maybe we prioritise our own comfort over the comforts of those who are in need. Well, is God commending this behavior to his people? Is he saying, actually, I'm rewarding these people, I'm blessing the wicked, so that's how I want you to live? No, he's not saying that, friends. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 4. He says, see, he, this is Babylon, is puffed up. His desires are not upright. God is not commending what Babylon is doing. He sees how arrogant and puffed up the Babylonians are and how their desires are all crooked and self-gratifying. And then look what he says. He says, The righteous will live by faith in God. The righteous will live by faith in God. That's faithful obedience to God's law as we wait for the fulfillment of God's promises. So in business, Christians are honest and ethical. In work, we don't, we don't gossip. We don't get involved in office politics. We don't cheat on our timesheets or say, claim credit for work that we haven't really done. In church, we're faithful to God's word in the Bible, even if that's unpopular. Well, at home, we change our lifestyle so we can give more 
not the other way around. We don't change our giving so we can live better. Christians, those who have believed in Christ and have been forgiven their sins by faith in him, well, we walk with God in faith and righteousness. Well, Habakkuk has been wondering, is God still the ruler? Is Babylon the ruler? Is God still good? Will God keep his promises? He's been wrestling with the problem of evil. And now God answers Habakkuk's questions. The Lord answers uh, what Habakkuk has been asking him. And he says, yes, God is still holy. He's still powerful. And he is still the ruler, even though this evil exists. Look at verse 2 and 3, what God says to Habakkuk. Then the Lord, Yahweh, replied, Write down the revelation and make it plain on tablets so that whoever reads it may run with it. You'll see the footnote there is whoever reads it. I think that makes more sense here. God wants Habakkuk to write down what he's going to reveal to him for the sake of those who are going to endure the punishment that he's sending and also for generations of believers to come. Verse 3, for the revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it. It will certainly come and will not delay. Did you notice that in verse 12, God appointed Babylon to judgment? And then in verse 3 of chapter 2, well, he has appointed an end to their time. He's appointed an end to their rule. They'll not get away with what they do forever. His promise will be kept. It will certainly come. It will not delay. Judgment will come um, for Babylon. It will come at the right time. It will come in God's timing. And it would come. They would be destroyed. Look at verse 4. See, he is puffed up. His desires are not upright. But the righteous will live by faith. Well, the implication of the righteous living by faith is that the, the unrighteous, the puffed up, and uh, the crooked, well, they don't live. They die. Look at verse 5. Babylon were treacherous in verse 13. Well, they're going to be betrayed as well in verse 5. Wine betrays him. Their luxurious living and their rejoicing and their partying, that, that betrays them. That will lead to their downfall, to their end. They're arrogant. They're never at rest. They're never satisfied. Though it looks like they've got all the power and all the luxury and all the rejoicing, actually they are as empty as the grave. Look at verse 5. They're greedy as the grave and like death, they're never satisfied. Even though that's why they, they gather all the nations, all the peoples to themselves. They think one more, the next nation we conquer, the next nation we conquer, that'll be the one that we can finally rest and be satisfied. But it never comes. They're living in opposition um, to God. The unrighteous are going to perish. Babylon is going to be destroyed by God. He, will, he would show his rule over them. And we know that Babylon was destroyed by the Medo-Persian Empire. They, God wasn't commending them. God wasn't prospering them forever. So God gives us this third principle for God's people waiting for fulfillment of God's promises. It is wait. For God's rule to be shown. Wait for God's rule to be shown. Because for us Christians, 
brothers and sisters, it can be tempting to think this way too, can't it? When we see things happening in front of us that we we just can't understand in our own personal circumstances, something goes wrong, an illness develops, a career comes to an end, we're we're going through some kind of struggle or pain. And it's tempting to think, is this really the best way? Is this really the way God wants me to live? I see all those other Christians and they're, they're preaching that God wants me to have a blessed life, a brilliant life, a powerful life, a wealthy life. Should I listen to them? Is Christ really going to come back and is he really going to bring these promises to fulfillment? Is it worth continuing as a Christian when I could just live the way the world lives, which God is seemingly blessing We're not immune to the problem of evil, are we, brothers and sisters, friends? The good news is that God will show his rule over evil. He will, when the Lord Jesus returns, when Christ comes back, when God's ruler comes to rule, when God's king takes his throne. Christ is God's ruler. He is the real ruler, the real king. Look at verse 3. The revelation awaits an appointed time. It speaks of the end and will not prove false. That is a foreshadowing of Christ's return in this passage, brothers and sisters. Because when he does, the righteous will live by faith in him. The unrighteous will perish. His people will have the choicest Food, the best wine, and will always be rejoicing in God's presence. Christ will gather to himself all the nations and all peoples. There will be no more misery, there will be no more death, there will be eternal life, there will be no more tears. This is worth waiting for, friends, isn't it? Wait for this. Wait for God to show his rule over the nations when Christ returns. You'll see that verse 4 popped up in our uh, New Testament reading earlier in Hebrews 10. There's a couple of other places it appears um, in the New Testament. Um, Hebrews 10 and verse 36 and 37 says this. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a very little while, he who is coming will come. And will not delay. But the righteous will live by faith. And if he shrinks back, I will not be pleased with him. The writer of the Hebrews is encouraging Christians to keep going. To keep on persevering. To keep waiting for God to fulfill his promises. Because it is so worth it. The warning here, the alternative, is shrinking back. Is giving up on God and on Christ. In school, I had some, some Christian friends. Um, there were there's a number of Christians in the Christian Union, but my close friends, uh, there were four guys called Tony and Gary and Matt, not my brother, different one, uh, and Ryan. And they were great lads with great crack uh, together. And when I see them on Facebook and when I, when I catch up with them every now and again, I wonder how many of them are still Christians? Well, it's, it's just the one, actually. It's just Gary. He's still going. He's actually an assistant pastor of a Baptist church. But the rest of them, they've, they've shrunk back. They've given up. They, they didn't want to wait for God to fulfill his promises. 
And none of them had light bulb moments where they just said, look, I don't want to be a Christian anymore, Ross, this isn't for me, I'm just not going to follow Christ. Actually, it was more like a gradual falling away as they were tempted by what looked to be being blessed by God, what looked like the rulers of the world. They were tempted away and prioritized other things. For one of them, it was, it was partying and popularity. For another one, it was money and it was success. For a third, it was sex and a, Christ, a girlfriend who wasn't a Christian. They weren't prepared to wait for God's timing. They weren't prepared to trust God. And they thought that the luxuries of this world were, were better than waiting for the luxuries of the next world, than waiting for the new creation where everything will be perfect and where will be no more pain and where we'll have the choicest food and wine all the time. They shrank back. Well, hear the warning of this passage, brothers and sisters. Don't shrink back. Don't give up. Don't stop waiting. Don't grow impatient for God. Don't try and fulfill his promises yourselves. Keep trusting God. Run the race that God has set before you. Like in verse 3, where whoever reads it will run. Run that race. The race of faith in Christ. What's coming later is so much better than what's offered by God, from God's enemies right now. And when we get there, when we get to eternity, whatever we're experiencing now, well, that will feel light and momentary. That'll feel like nothing, a speck on the horizon. I can expect, we can expect to live on average, what, 70, 80, 90 years at a, at a push. That'll seem like a speck compared to eternity. 10 million years from now, we'll be rejoicing with Christ. 10 billion years, we'll be with him in heaven. We will be gathered as God's people around his throne. Don't be tempted by the luxuries of this world, brothers and sisters. Keep looking forward to what Christ has promised, what God has promised. Keep waiting for God. Let's pray. Father God in heaven, we, we praise you and we thank you that even though we're the ones who are wicked and deserve your judgment, that it was poured out on Christ for us, that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. We pray, Father God, that you would help us to keep that faith, to keep trusting in Christ, to keep waiting for you to fulfill your promise of Christ's return. Father God, we want to be a people who are honest with you and who wrestle with you. We want to have a deep and loving relationship with you, Father. Please change us by your Holy Spirit so that we might desire to know you better and not just to know about you. Please help us to turn from sin, Lord, to keep walking with you in purity, in holiness, and in righteousness. Help us not to be tempted by the, the ways of this world, the luxuries on offer by your enemies but help us to keep on trusting in you and waiting for you to fulfill your promises. We ask this in Christ's name, for his glory. Amen.